Hi, welcome to the Outdoor Cast. I'm Chris, and I'm here with Drew and Pat again today, and we are live from the Smokehouse. This week, we talk about our weekend adventures fishing. They did a little coyote hunting, and we got a couple, we got a big project we're going to work on. Uh, also, we have a review of a scope coming up. Stay tuned. So this weekend we went up to the cabin, um, did a little fishing and hanging deer cams. We kind of got rained out, so we couldn't do much else. Um, so we'll let Chris talk about what, we, what he did. He hung more deer cameras than anyone. I'll let him start out with wh- where he hang or you know why he picked where he hung them and everything. So early in the season when I hang deer cameras, I like to figure out what's in the area. I'm more worried about what's in the area than I am about where they're actually traveling. I'll go back in a couple months and kind of tweak them and start putting them around some stands and kind of zeroing in on where I want to hang some stuff. But about a month ago, I went up and put out some salt blocks in a couple of spots where we've had success and got a lot of pictures in the past and went back and checked them. We had deer had already been on. We had lots of prints around them and stuff like that, so we hung some cameras there. I think in all in all, we hung eight cameras, so we did pretty good. We should hopefully in a month or two have some good pictures and have a general idea of what's coming along for this year. So is there uh, any... Why did you hang the cameras where you hung them? So the couple of spots I picked were, there, we have a couple of big creeks that run through one of the properties, and I look, there's only a couple of crossings along there where the deer are actually crossing, and I picked one of those and I put the salt block there. A couple other spots are pitch points on the corners of fields. Uh, we hung a couple of those. Um, a lot of the land is in CRP along the creeks up there, so the creeks are fenced off and there's crossings between the fields along those creeks, so the deer naturally funnel in through those the crosses where we take the tractors across, and I hung a couple cameras in those as well because generally get really good pictures right there. Um, I kind of took a little bit different approach when I hung my cameras. Um, I did, I guess I did hang them in pinch points and things like that. Uh, why I picked it, where the reason why I picked where I hung my cameras is I'm kind of thinking I'm tempted to move my stand this summer, and I wanted to. I put one camera up under my stand. And another camera up where I'm kind of thinking I might either put another stand or move my stand to just to kind of see where the deer are moving through more, uh, you know, because they're, they're not very far away from each other. So the deer are probably going to be the, you know, the, the same deer moving through there. It's just a, more of the spot that I want to move to I could get better shots at with the bow. Uh, and if the deer are moving through there, I'd much rather move the stand over there that and this trees over there a little straighter so i won't be sitting with my you know leaning back against the tree um also like i said there's a i you know there's it's a lot more open so i have a lot better shot at things i can also see a lot more coming and going you know there i, I have pretty much full view around this where i want to put the stand i'm like where i am now where i can only see you know what's in front of me and maybe a little bit to each side i can't see what's behind me because it's fairly heavily wooded back there and it also goes down you know there's a bunch of hills in the woods so um i talked a little bit about how i was going to move stand or move cameras again here in a month or two so what i did this weekend was we have quite a bit of land in northern missouri and there's it's spread out on four or five different farms so i tried to put cameras on each farm kind of spread out and if i hopefully can zero in on a couple big bucks on a certain farm or two and then i will centralize cameras in that area to try to figure out exactly where he's moving and hanging out in that area and hopefully have that figured out by early bow season. Yeah. Um, another thing we did is, is it rained quite a bit, so we couldn't drive around too much, do things like that. 
Um, so we kind of just went and hit some of our ponds. There's a couple of new ponds we went and hit. Um, try to catch some fish, maybe have a fish fry. It didn't end up happening. Uh, but we did catch quite a few fish. Um, we got to try out. Chris got a new fly rod he got to try out. Yeah, I got an eight weight last week on sale, and I didn't think it was going to come in in time for the weekend, but it came in Friday before I left, so we got to take that up and catch some bass on it. That was fun. I'd never fished with a, that heavy a fly rod before. I had a five. That's what I fished with in the past. I used to trout fishing and stuff. So the eight was similar, new and different, exciting for me. Could throw some bigger flies, and at least as far as pond fishing, I could target bass and bigger fish as opposed to before. I was throwing littler flies, so I was catching a lot of panfish and stuff. Yeah, you uh, missed a pretty big bass. He says monster. I was fishing with a bait caster, and I have what I'm guessing was a five pounder on there. Oh, now it's shrinking. No, I always <laughs> said five. Which isn't a giant bass if you're fishing big water, but for a farm pond, that's that's a legitimate sized fish. Had him on, fought it for a couple minutes, and had him right at the bank, and then, I mean, he wasn't, like, on the bank, but he was right in front of me, and pulled the lure out. I mean, he was good size. I'm pretty sure I could get my fist in his mouth, so, but that happens. Part of fishing. Give me reason to go back to that pond and concentrate on it next time. It gives us all a joke for the weekend, too, because uh, we all had quite a time giving crap about that, because... Uh, Mr. Chris here has said he's got into some big fish and he gets a man in there sometimes, most of the time, a little bit smaller, sometimes this a lot smaller. This one was big. Like, he caught one this weekend. He's like, oh, this feels like a nice fish. Gets it in. It's a bluegill smaller than a soda can. So On a fly rod. It was on a fly it. rod, but it was on an eight-way fly rod. <laughs> it was darting around like crazy. Well, yeah. You should be able to tell. Separate was, he fought harder than some of the... <laughs> bluegill fought harder than some of the bass I caught. He was... Yeah. See, she should have been around her 4 then it would have felt ginormous. I know, but I got a catfish on here. <laughs> yeah, I, I, mean, I caught one that was almost a pound this weekend on my 4 and that was that was a blast. Because the first day we were out, they were really hitting hard. I mean, they were... Pre-storm weather. Yeah, the, but that storm moved in, and a lot of these ponds, they have the... They have cow, yeah, they have cows that run through them, so they've got steep, muddy banks, so... When that rains, all the crawdads that are living close to the water get washed in there. Worms. So they, the second day, Sunday, we just didn't have, we didn't really have any luck at all. Um, no, my fly rod, I was fly rod, I was running mainly woolly boogers. What were you running, Pat? Uh, woolly boogers and a marib- couple of marabou streamers. Uh, they're essentially just your normal marabou trout marabous, trout marabous without without a head and these a longer hook. Uh, they're I don't know. I've never really seen them anywhere other than one trout park here, so I don't know if they're, you know, a big thing. You don't see them on, you know, you don't see them on the Orvis website or anything. Whenever you're going looking for fly tying patterns and stuff, uh, mostly ginger was the color I was using. So like a yeah, I tried out one of yours. A brownish white, a brownish, and then with a little bit of white streak in there. They were pretty well for bass. Yeah, they were size ten. I want to say ten or eleven. Those are for me. That's a huge fly. It's a lot bigger than I'm used to. 22s are about my average fly that I use. Uh, even when I go bass fishing, I'm not using much bigger than a 22. So, it was, yeah, I, 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 give me a 30, I'll use it. Um, gives me an excuse to go buy a double lot or a triple lot. Triple lot. Oh man, that triple lot. Hmm. Uh, so another thing we did, since it was raining, we couldn't do much, you know, um, in the way of going out and fishing and stuff. Um, you know, we had some pretty good storms come through. I mean, just poured down rain. Um, Chris had a project car that's been sitting for a while, and we went and filled with that. I'll let him fill in what's that, because that looks like it's going to be a big project for all of us coming up. We're going to bring it over to my house and take a look, take work on it anyway. So I'll let him fun. go into that. Yeah, a lot of fun, a lot of pain. Yeah. 
So my parents have a, or they still do, they have a 72 Monte Carlo that they parked back in the late 80s in a barn at my grandparents. And So, just so you know, this is this car has been parked longer than most of us in this room have been alive. <laughs> it was parked shortly after I was born. Um, I always kind of thought it'd be cool to fix it up. We A couple years ago, it's an old barn. that It wasn't getting used for anything. That's why the car got stuck in there. Had a dirt floor in it, which for years was fine, but about five years ago... A piece of the roof blew off, so you had rain coming in, and it was getting wet, and the car was starting to sink. So we went in this weekend and jacked it up and got it back up out of the mud. Luckily, looking at it, it doesn't look like it really did much damage. The frames still look good. The floor or the floor pans look good, all that stuff. So, But you don't want to be within about 20 feet of that car when you open a door. It smells a little bit, but... Oh, that, a little bit? <laughs> I opened the door, my up. ears started... My eyes started watering. But the, the what we've been talking about and kind of planned since we got back is trying to go up and pick that up and bring it back down here to Columbia and do a rebuild on it. Kind of get it up and running, have another toy to kind of play around in. It's, uh, it's just a, your standard small block, 350. Um, you know, any, any car guys out there, you know, it's just not, there's nothing too terribly fancy about it. Um, it does, it, the paint actually looks pretty good. There's a couple rot, rust spots on it. Um, Had a yeah. brand new vinyl top put on it like a year before it got parked, so that looks really good still. Yeah, our, major, our major worries right now are if anything got in the engine because the carb has been taken off. Um, and gas tank, that's another one that's where we're the rear end. Yeah, in the rear end, if there's any water that's seeped into the rear end, we don't want a pumpkin full of water. But, um, you know, we'll find all that out pretty quick, hopefully, once we get it. Once we get it here, uh, it's going to be parked in my house where I've got the most land and stuff that we can just park it and nobody's going to care. So uh, that and I've got all the t- most of the tools we need to fix it, so... It's gonna be a fun little project for most of the summer. Um, you have any like, I you know, any ideas of what you're wanting to do? Kind of your game plan with it. So basically, the body and stuff I'm not too worried about. It looks it looks decent. Uh, clean it up real good. Polish up the chrome, all that, and it'll it'll be dry. I pretty much just want to get it driving at the moment. Um, get it semi-reliable. We can drive around town and hang out and that kind of stuff. Yeah, and then cast mobile. Yeah, so. Maybe in a couple of years we'll worry about upgrading engine and stuff like that. But at the moment, just like to get it up and going and have something to drive around and have another toy to play with. Yeah. So um, we're thinking for you know not a whole lot of money we can we can make that happen and then it will give us a fun project to work on here in town in the evenings when we get off early and stuff like that and give us a something to do when we're not fishing. Yep. Um, you know, unfortunately, I don't have. We, we're going to put it in my barn, but it doesn't look like it's going to fit through the doors of the. The only area big enough to actually put the car in, um, so it's going to be a driveway project for the time being, at least. So that's kind of ruined. That kind of limits when we can work on it. If it's raining or whatever, we're probably going to be able to work on it unless if I can fabricate something with some PVC and some tarp, which I'm pretty sure I can. Kind of like the redneck things, redneck rig. How expensive one of those buildable ones? Steel roofs. Well, now I want to spend on one. Maybe one of the little half circle. <laughs> or I want to spin on one. Oh well. I go some PVC pipe, and reinforce the bottom with rebar, and put a tarp up. We're gonna redneck it. <laughs> really? I mean, what haven't I redneck? <laughs> I redneck a lot. <laughs> we could just tear down a couple barns and build another one. I got some. I got some of those uh, fiberglass roof panels we can put over it. But <clears throat> make it real classy. Hey, you know. I just want heat when winter comes. We'll just get one of those torpedo gas heaters. But if we're still outside. Torpedo gas heater, that thing will warm you up. <laughs> Hopefully, we'll have it at least running by winter. 
Uh, it really doesn't look too bad. Um, we don't know what the inside of the motor looks like, like I said, so it might be we go get it all, we go get all the, what we're going to do is we're going to take all the plugs out before we move it out of the barn or once we get up on the trailer. Before we bring it down here, we're going to drain all the fluids out of it, um, take all spark plugs out, fill the cylinders up with penetrating oil. As for anybody who's never really done barn finds, that's kind of what the thing you do. Before you even try moving the cylinders, you fill the cylinders up, you take spark plugs out, you do Marvel's Mistral is one of them. Uh, you can use PB Blaster. I don't really like PB Blaster for that because... It makes an industrial strength PB Blaster that's real nice. Yeah, it's, the, it's not even the, same the problem stuff, with though. it is is some ring materials It's and gasket... Excuse me, materials it's not, is good not on the them. best on. It's not good um, on So Marvel's Mistral is usually your better bet. That'll kind of break down any rust or anything that's in the cylinders. Like I said, the carb has been off, so there is a chance there's been... You know, there's some you know condensation or whatever in the intake that's gotten down the cylinder. It's slightly likely because the roof is still mostly intact on the on the barn, so I doubt it got rained on or anything like that. I mean, it's got a nice, good coat of rust. Looks brown right now, or coat of dirt, anyways. Looks brown right now. Um, so first off, that's what you want to do. You want to take you want to take spark plugs out, throw them away. You're not going to reuse them. Spark plugs are cheap, not even worth reusing. Uh, spray down some penetrant oil down in there and then drain all the oil out of it. Go get yourself the cheapest oil you can. You know, you can get, I don't know, just whatever cheap oil you have. Um, just fill it up. Just fill it all the way up until it comes out, until it starts pouring out the top of the engine. You want every nook and cranny of that engine full of oil. So when you do try to crank it, everything's been pre-lubed. Um, then... One, you know, you let that sit for five, six hours. You know, the longer you let it sit, the better. Most people say they let it sit for a day. Really, five, six hours. I think you're going to get most. You're going to get most of the, you know, most of the nooks and crannies all covered in oil. Drain out that oil. Uh, you also want to replace oil filters both times you do it. Uh, not like it's going to really matter because it's not pumping through. It's just you're getting that much more contamination out of the motor. Uh, both time you do that, replace oil filters. You can use just cheap oil filters. You know your three dollar Walmart filters or whatever. Place that oil filter, put that on there, and then you actually do an oil change on it. It doesn't have to be nice oil yet, because you know you're gonna change it before you actually run the motor for any extended period of time. Change that oil out. Once you have the oil to the proper level, then you take a uh, with the battery disconnected, of course, and all that. You take yourself a socket wrench, put that on the crankshaft, and you just slowly turn it you want to go around a couple of turns just to make sure there's no rough spots to make sure it still cranks over it still cranks over there's a good chance you won't have to rebuild that you won't have to pull the motor apart right then so that's kind of what we're hoping we're hoping we can get that motor freely spinning with very little effort and slap a car well take the intake off clean all that up slap a carb on there and at least get it firing and moving under its own power um, next thing we're worried about is probably the beyond the gas tank the gas tank's a separate issue since the gas tank was up against the ground and we couldn't get we couldn't get it up high enough to actually see the gas tank very well the way it's built up but you can't see it past the axle uh i tried taking the camera under there i just couldn't get pictures of it so the gas tank's still in good shape then i guess we can reuse it It'd be better to replace it with a plastic one uh but we're worried about the axle the axle was sitting on the ground and there was a puddle of water under it so you know it's one of those things it's better before you try moving it too much you want to pull that you want to take the back you want to take the, the housing off. off yeah take the diff cover off drain all the fluid out of it fill it up with fresh fluid and then 
what I do is I put the axle up on jack stands and spin the tire just slowly just to kind of get Work that in there. yeah get that um, oil, oil in there some people say they use 40 weight oil I don't I just go ahead and go straight to the 80 weight 80 weights what you run in most of your rear differentials anyways um, but you know some people say 40 just kind of because it's a little bit smoother or it's it's thinner it's a thinner viscosity so it'll get in all those crannies nooks and crannies easier get in all your worm gears and everything I say just go straight to eight weight and just take it slow just don't don't try to spin it too fast just you know one or two revolutions per minute just kind of just nice and steady break up all that rust and anything that might be built up in there so we're hoping it's not full of water if it's full of water that adds more onto the cost uh, so oh that stuff it looks like it's gonna be a fairly easy project at least get it running interior is another another mess all complete like i said it smells like i do 50 mice have done it carpet cleaning and stuff that's my job and we do a lot of upholstery i've done cars up like that so i'm hoping in the short term i can get it cleaned up with bring some work equipment over and get it cleaned up well enough and maybe throw an ozone machine in there for a day or two and get it so it's tolerable at least for the the moment till we get up and get it running and drivable is the first part of it and then after that we may start working on interior I don't know it depends on what it looks like it was in really good shape when it got parked so but of course you know 30 years and mice and all that stuff aren't going to be it has white leather interior that's three different colors right now at least so I'm thinking we can at least get it to smell good or not smell bad anymore but what it's going to look like it's probably going to be stained and stuff like that so eventually new carpet and all that stuff is probably going to be be on the bill but for the moment that's where we're, we're at on that good thing is it's a first gen GM or you know GM vehicle um, for some reason, collectors love all GM cars in their first in their first generation. So there are catalogs and everything. You know, we can find all the resources we need. Um, we've never really done. A, I've done. I've rebuilt a few engines and things like that. I've never done quite this extensive a rebuild. If if we do have to rebuild it, uh, you know, I've I've built a Civic and things like that before. We back in college, we were building cars all the time, just racing them on the airstrip down there at the college i went to so this could be you know i'm gonna learn something from it even though that i'm probably i think i've probably other than maybe drew who actually works at a dealership he just mostly does oil changes i think i've probably done the most the most mechanic work around here so i'm kind of excited about this so they're a lot of hell i'm not usually yeah he's he's more yeah he's not very much he's not really a lead tech he's not asc certified so i've gotten with my friends at home we've done a lot i'm usually still the hell but, but I've seen it and I've, I've done it, so it shouldn't be horrible. It's going to be a learning experience for all of us. Yeah, and this will be the first Chevy that I've really torn down other than just replacing transmissions because I can replace a front-wheel drive, uh, thir- you know, 90-degree V6 transmission in a few hours. I'm pretty good at that. <laughs> uh, next thing is... Uh, oh, well, one uh, other thing while we were up there this weekend, we did do a little oh, work on another vehicle as well. Oh, yeah, um... My cousin has a four-seater pipe buggy with an old VW engine on it that we got up and, well, he bought it and then had some problems with it. And then, what, two two years ago, Pat did, did some work. Well, Pat did some work on it and got it yeah, got it running again. I think I'm the only person in, that's ever gone through the county that that's in that's ever worked on an air-cooled Volkswagen because it's kind of a kind of a country county and you probably don't see very many cool Volkswagens around there. So. But we got it running and we had a blast in it a weekend up there and then my cousin was driving it around some more and started having some engine problems with it so it's been parked for a while and we got that out, hooked it up to, well pushed it out of the grass, hooked it up to Drew's truck and drug it over and put it in a barn and started 
Well, pulling it apart. Well, I was watching. Pat and Drew were doing most of the work. You guys want to talk about what happened with that? Um, yeah. Okay. So, about this time last year, I want to say, we went up there and it was parked in a field. Um, his cousin said that he was having problems with it. I went and took a look. We drug it back to their house. Went and took a look at it without tearing it open or anything. I just, you know, we were turning it. with the, We were turning the crank. And we were getting a hard stop on the... Um, Drive side um, forward cylinder. No, on the uh, exhaust or on the intake stroke. We're getting a hard stop on the intake stroke. So I thought, you know, well, this kind of looks like a bent valve, and it kind of felt like it was on the driver's side. Um, the main reason why I felt like it was on the driver's side is because the exhaust rested off on that side. And air cooled Volkswagens do not do well running without mufflers. Uh, we did. We got it all apart after lots of cursing and knuckle busting and everything. It it had been chromed out. There were chrome beauty cover, beauty covers and heat shields on there that aren't on a factory, you know, Volkswagen air cooled motor, which makes them look pretty on an open engine yeah. like that. But um, I've taken apart a few. It's been almost ten years since I've taken apart an air cooled Volkswagen, so it was kind of it's kind of uh, re- nice reminiscing reminiscing back to my high school days. I you know I'm kind of big. Kind of big into Volkswagens. You don't see that much around here, but I am. Uh, I kind of like my Volkswagens. My first drivable car was a Volkswagen, and kind of just fell in love. They're they're quirky little cars. <laughs> um, so took we took the heads off of that. Um, one cylinder had some had some heat damage, but I think we might be able to hone that out. Well, we got that apart. We couldn't see. Took the valve, licked the valves. They all look good, and then. Uh, you know, we kind of, it was already late, and we kind of were ready to stop. Well, we took one more look. We turned the crank a little bit and noticed that the crank was jumping forward. Every time you'd hit that stop point, it would jump forward, and then you go backwards, and it'd go back to normal. So I was like, oh, crap, he's got something wrong with that crank. So we just gave up for the night, labeled everything, gave it back to him, and said, yeah. He's like, well, I'll have somebody else take a look at it. Well, his, Chris's uncle, the guy's father, uh, the next day as we were leaving like well you should take another head off he used to be a mechanic back in the day and he's like you should take another head off there might be something wrong with it on that side and you think about it, it could be a bent valve pushing on a piston that could be pushing it forward um because it does it does stop at different points whether you go clockwise counterclockwise uh it's about a yeah i don't, I don't remember exactly but you know you you definitely feel that hit and you know you can feel it go forward now, so we're hoping it's just a bent valve still. But they're said so they're going to take it apart this week and or soon, and hopefully they'll get back and run because I think it's a blast. It sounds like a Harley. Well, down the road. well, once they put mufflers on again, hopefully it'll be a little quieter. It was almost, it was too loud before, but yeah, you could hear it coming from a long ways away. But it's got uh, what was it, three hundred fives on the back, so it's got nice wide ten inch tires on the back of it. And they're uh, nice radial tires kind of fun going through the gravel roads and stuff because even with like 50 horsepower you know that's my you know liberal rating of what it had probably about 50 horsepower but still a blast to drive around they don't weigh very much your power to weight yeah. still yeah because i mean you can you can lift up either side of this buggy with you know one person could get the back up about an inch but you could wheelie the front end of it if you just pick the one person pick it up and pull it up over their heads it's a little four four seater buggy so it's very very rear weight biased because they are because uh, they, what they've done is they take the 
air-cooled Volkswagen motors are an opposed four that they use a transaxle. It's in the their rear drive on those old Beetles, but it's set up like a front-wheel drive car because it's rear engine, so they've got the transmission. You know, they actually have a transaxle in the back instead of transmission drive shaft and differential or axle, anyways. So it's very, very rear-weighted. The engine actually hangs out past the rear. It's set yeah. behind the rear axle. Yeah, just a little bit. Yeah, so. It, you know, you get much you get much power on those. You get some traction. You can easily do wheelies in them. They're they're a lot of fun. So. Um, well, I think that's that's about all we did with cars this weekend. Um, Chris was wanting to talk a little about his new fly rod. Uh, it's it's pretty nice, and I'll let him talk about that a little bit. Um, so I got it at Cabela's. They were having a sale, and I forget it's an RS something. Anyways, it was I did some review or read the reviews on and stuff. The reviews on the rod for for what I paid for were pretty good. I think I got the combo for 120 and it's usually, I don't know, 250-300. But from reading up on it, I guess it's on sale a lot. Not a big deal. But for the 120 I paid for it, it's, it's really nice. The 8-weight was a, a little different for me. It feels uh, like casting a log compared to a 5-weight. It does. But I, I liked it. It was uh, fun being able to... The big thing we always joke about with our bait cast is we like to drag fish across the top of water. There's just something about it when you've got that much power behind them and you can almost do it on those little one pound bass with that eight weight so it was kind of that was kind of fun the reel on it's what i really like i feel i felt like that was the the bargain with the the setup it's a lot nicer than the really cheap basic reel i bought for my five weight because when i bought it my thought was i'm never going to use the reel it's just going to hold line when we're hitting the trout parks and stuff a lot of the fish we're catching are a pound the two pound ones are pretty nice You're fish stripping them in you don't have to reel them yeah in. so i i didn't spend any money on the reel. I got the cheapest basic reel I could get that actually had a clicker and adjustable drag on it. And so this was a definite step up for that. It was actually fun getting a fish on the reel. I still knew it too much because I'm used to stripping them in. But I did put a couple on the reel just to see what it was like. And I did. I like that. The one downside and pretty much any of the combos or the lower end combos, the line that comes on them is just awful. <laughs> when you buy a combo and they don't tell you what kind of line's on it, that's generally not a good sign. So what was on there was it was just basic floating line. It was okay for what we were doing, but at some point here, that's going to need to get upgraded. Um, I just put real gold on my five weight, and I've been really happy with it. So I might end up putting something like that on there or getting a semi-sinking line. I haven't quite decided what route I'm going to go with as far as that goes. But I got a trip to Minnesota coming up here in a couple weeks, and so Test pardon me. Out. I think I'm just going to keep the line that's on the on the eight weight and go up there and see how it how it performs. I've got the five weight and I'm planning on using my baby caster and stuff mainly, but I wanted to take a couple fly rods for fun. And then after that, kind of get that line through a good workout, decide if I want to upgrade or what direction I want to go as far as upgrading line goes to the sinking or the floating or whatnot is in that department. Um, yeah, I'm kind of out of us three, anyways. I'm kind of the the fly rod person. I kind of do it so i mean coming from my end a few things that i noticed about it that that i didn't like anyways were the reel mainly is um it is uh can't think of what it, what it is um it's aluminum i know that much um it's cast aluminum that's what it is and it is uh the problem with cast aluminum is the way the reel comes together there's the center posts a lot of problems. You, a lot of times, you have problems with the line getting stuck in there. I'm hoping that it's a big enough line for them that it won't get pinched in there because that can cause big problems when you have a fish strip off a bunch of line. It can loop back around and get stuck. Cut it. 
Yeah, well, it mainly just gets stuck in there and you end up breaking line or you break tippet or you lose, you know, best case scenario, you just lose the fish because it breaks off your tippet. Um, one thing I did like about it is something that not a lot of fly fishermen, you know, beginner fly fishermen know and use. It did come with a tapered leader. Um, I have been trying to get these guys to run tapered leaders for a while, and the fact that it came with it's good because you go out and you go get a lot of the a lot of the cheaper beginner combos. They don't come with tapered leaders. Tapered leaders help you cat. They help you lay out the flies a lot better. It, it weights a lot better. Um, so that's something if you're beginning, if you're thinking about getting a fly fishing, make sure you pick up even if you pick up a cheap tapered leader. Um, you know, cheaper. They're really they're not that bad. You buy a tapered leader, it's going to cost you. Expensive one's going to cost you nine bucks, but it's going to last. You know, I usually have a tapered leader that lasts me, you know, three, four months, and I'm a fairly heavy fly fisherman. I mean, I fly fish whenever I can. I haven't really picked up a baitcaster too much lately because I've been fly fishing the last couple of years. So it's, it is a worth, worthy investment. It will help you lay out your flies better, especially when you're running dries. Not that it's going to matter on eight ways. It's probably not going to be throwing many dries. Um, but it helps, it helps them lay out better. It also helps your loops when you're casting. Um, what was the other? Um, I did like for an eight weight. It actually feels like it's a fairly fast action for the price. It's not, you know, it's not your high end fly rod. It's it's not going to have that nice sensitive tip like a nice like a big fly rod will or a nice fly rod will. But it but it's 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 fair. It's it's not it's not bad, uh, especially for the price. It really is not bad. Um, yeah, I mean the size of the reel is good, and it is an eight weight. It's an eight nine weight, I believe, reel, isn't it, or is it seven eight? It's a seven eight reel. Seven eight reel. So I mean, it's fairly big. It's palm palm of your hand size, or roughly, maybe a little bit bigger. I did like. I never used a rod before that had the fighting butt on it. Oh, and yeah. not that we were catching. I was catching any big fish, but it was kind of nice to have that option. I kind of played around with it a little because with the five weights, and I fished with Pat's four and stuff like that, and a six a time or two. I didn't have that option. Another thing I liked about it, um, when I'm looking for a fly rod, I try to find a four-piece. Just The reason I'm looking for them is I like to be able to carry it in my car all the time, and the four the four pieces, they fit nicely in a case, and I just put them in the back glass. My car, that way I don't have to worry about anything happening to them, and they're always there. came with that. My other rod didn't come with a case. It was a four-piece as well, so I bought a case for it, and it is just uh, essentially is a hollow tube, and then it had the zipping pouch in the back. So you could leave the reel on the whole time, and this one's the same. But this one had individual pouches inside for each piece of the fly rods so they don't rub against each other which i don't know how important that is but it was nice hopefully it'll keep the rod looking a little better longer so i like that aspect of it too yeah um God, there was something else i was gonna add to that um for me personally i felt the eight weights i could cast farther with it and i'm sure part of that's just the rod but it felt it felt a little more natural to me using it and i've i mean i've had my five weight a little over a year and i've used it i use it some i trout fished with it a fair amount and so i feel okay comfortable with this felt better to me and maybe it's just because the bigger rods are easier to fish i haven't fished that many fly rods but well, it's longer I did like, than your five weight isn't it my five weight's an eight and a half and this was a nine foot so that yeah may that have helps out a little it. bit when you're fly fishing the more line you have out to a point it's easier to cast um a lot of problem we were having is we couldn't have enough area to back cast and he was we didn't have heavy enough flies up there because the flies that i ordered did not come in on time thank you usps uh, they did not come in on time, so I didn't have any flies big enough for any. And I, I've recently gotten into some fly tying a little bit, but I didn't tie anything up because I didn't think I was going to have that, that fly rod for the weekend, so I tied stuff for my five weight to use and then ended up not using my fly five weight at all. So had to try to borrow some stuff from Pat that was a little heavier, but yeah, they were still a little light for what we were trying to do, but 
Yeah, there's stuff that I usually cast on my five or six weight. Um, you know, my they're I can cast my full weight. They're a little heavy. They're just little woolly bo- uh, tungsten bead woolly boogers. Uh, oh, one thing. Well, he was talking about the four piece with fly rods. Generally, you have one, two, and four piece. There are a couple of three piece rods out there. They're not very common. I've seen a couple. Um, the main thing with that is. The reason why you still have the one piece is because of your spline count. Uh, your spline count is your strength of your rod, the sensitivity of your rod, everything like that. Um, the last eh, six, seven years or so, companies have gotten a lot better about getting the spline right on a four piece. For a long time, it was really hard. Like they were even having trouble with two piece rods for a long time. Um, so that that's gotten a lot better. So that has a lot to do with why you're seeing more four piece rods on the market. Uh, those yeah. different segments just put more tension on the rod at those points, like a pressure point, kind of. Um, or is it just easier to cast a one piece? No, it's, more, it's, 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 it's piece not so rod. much the casting; it's the strength of the rod at that okay. point. Um, when you have a fo- the the rod's gonna slip over one piece is gonna slip over the other. You're you're not. It's not gonna be as a. It's not gonna be a fluid spline across the back of the rod. When you're doing that, so it's not it, they don't load properly. Like if you if you cast a twelve foot one you know one piece, that thing's gonna cast just amazing because it has a solid backbone all the way. To, it has one solid backbone going all the way down it instead of the backbone being segmented out. So generally, the general with air quotes, your your better casting rods are gonna be one and two piece. But that's that's not even so much of an issue anymore. Most most fly companies. I mean, even really high-end rods, a lot of time are still still two or four piece now. So. Um, the four piece is nice for traveling; it makes it so much easier. Yeah. yeah. One thing that I like about the the butt stop on that is, if you're trout fishing, you have to dip the um, dip the rod down in the water, or even on the bank behind you. That butt stop's gonna keep it from digging your reel into the mud, which is nice, or into the sand, so you don't get sand in your line and deteriorate your line. Talk about like when you set it down with the butt down to string it or something like that. Yeah, to tie on a new fly, um, or you know, take a fish off. You have a fish that's giving you a fight. Untangle line at the tip, or untangle line. Yeah, just anytime you have to, you know, if you've ever fly fished, you know what I'm talking about. You have to slide the you have to slide the reel behind you and rested on the ground sometimes and that just it helps with that uh one question i do have about your rod was that a cork drag or what what kind of what was the drag material on that do you know i do not okay. i meant to look into it and then kind of forgot about it uh if you're out there and you're looking for a flyer if you're looking for a new reel uh and you're looking for an adjustable drag not a click and paw reel you want to look for something that doesn't have a cork drag if you can um i know non-cork drags get up there in price uh, a lot of the a lot of the there's like, I think there's ceramic and there, there's a few different drag systems out there uh, materials for your dish drags anyways you have two basic drag systems you have click and paw which is just a straight it's kind of like a U that is inside there that just sits on there there's no real adjustable drag on it some of them I think have adjustable drag now they're your more basic reel they're better for smaller fish because um, you're using, you know, you're using your fingers to put a pressure on the line to create drag. Um, but the thing about cork 
if you're out looking for a mechanical or you know a dish drag system the core grills break down uh, I learned this the hard way I didn't really understand that because I've always used click and paw until the last couple years and um, my I bought a Reddington Crosswater that's their beginners reel I just bought it because it was cheap um, you know it's like 30 40 bucks something like that um, because I had always grown, you know, not really necessarily grown up, but I had always been under the impression that the reel was just something to hold your line until I started targeting bigger fish on lighter line, uh, light, lighter setups. Now it's more necessary for the drag. The cork drag breaks down when it gets wet. Uh, my reel is less than a year old. No, it's almost two years old, I guess now. Yeah, almost two years old. And the cork drag's gone in it. There's no... You, I... I have a little bit of drag, but it's not much because it's gotten wet so many times from fishing in the rain. I use it a lot. I mean, last summer I was trout fishing every other weekend. It was, I mean, I just used it a lot last summer. So that's something to look into if you're looking for a reel that you want to use for a long time. Maybe if you're beginning, it's not that big of a deal. You're probably, you know, going to want to upgrade before that cork goes out. Uh, but that is, that is just something to think about. Well, one of the other things we did this weekend is we talked about last week we were going to try to shoot some coyotes, and we did have a break in the rain, and we tried to go out, and we did one sit. The problem we found out was everything's grown up right now, which if we were a little later in the summer, a lot of the hay fields and stuff would have been cut, but nothing up there. The farmers haven't done any of the first cuts yet, so we had a lot of grass that was knee-high, which was making visibility and setting up a kind of a problem. We did one sit. We gave it a try. We didn't see anything come in, but again... We did a young buck come in at about what 300 yards yeah he was, how's the velvet looking on him right now are they starting to get he had little he had little he, he was, was out off his mind just past he would he was starting to split it was just past his ears he was far enough away couldn't really tell how big i mean i was guessing it was a two and a half year old so deer still in the spring they're still so skinny it, it's hard to it's hard to age him before uh, the deer farm on the way back i don't know if you all saw it but the deer they have a giant deer there and uh, he's got like fist-sized balls already starting to protrude from his head, and I, I just noticed he was in velvet, so I didn't know how the how the deer were coming up there. So there. they did hold their antlers a lot longer this year than normal. If that has anything yeah. to do with the new growth, no, well, I don't think it usually does. Usually, it's you it's know a, yeah, that mid June they're starting to get good. You know, they're starting to really start to come in. But we did do one sit, and hopefully. We're up there again in a month or two when stuff's cut and we can have a little bit better setups that might help and we'll maybe try try again. It was again. kind of a last minute thing too. We didn't really plan to like it wasn't our main thing. It was yeah, because like I mean we didn't even plan to go up there until a week or two ago. It was just kind of like, well, if we have time, we'll do it. So next time, if we're not fishing or something, we'll plan it and we'll do a couple sits, have some pre. That and that rain pretty much the just, rain did just tear it, tore shoot it. Yeah, made it a little harder on us. We didn't really have the time we wanted. And it was a little hard, harder getting in, a lot more walking. We're limited where we can get trucks, and we borrowed a side by side from my grandparents or my aunt and uncle, and used that some too to help get around. But still, didn't want to tear up fields, didn't want to drive through un the uncut hay fields and trench them up, stuff like that too. So that kind of limited where we could get in without a whole lot of walking. Because I mean, we'll walk some, but I'm not going to walk in 20 minutes to to do a 20 minute sit or call me lazy, but I'm. Not, I, I enjoy shooting coyotes, but it's not deer hunting. I'm you're getting something from deer hunting. You're getting yes, meat. deer hunting. I'll put a willing to work a lot harder. Coyotes. You're getting something from coyote. You're putting a number down on the, yeah. the predators, and I think up there there are a good number of them. 
Yeah, but I mean, it, you don't you don't have a tangible benefit from that. On you know, you don't. It's have, not like you, you don't know. have you don't have the meat on your table. That's the reason why I've never been big into coyote hunting is because it's a lot of work. I can go out and go fishing at the same time. You're, you're not going to lay a night lay awake at night thinking about the giant coyote you're going to shoot in the morning. Whereas yeah. deer season, there's always that. What if that big one steps out? It's not the giant coyote. It's the pack of coyotes who <laughs> shoot. So that's kind of been always my problem with turkey season too. Is I could be fishing. I mean, deer season. There's a couple of deer seasons where I've been able to be out and go fishing one. You know, during deer hunting, but usually it's too cold. You don't like turkey meat, do you? Eh, no, wild no, but the wife does. So okay. she, <laughs> I, I love she fried turkey. So. She yells at me every year about not shooting turkey. I mean, I tried to shoot her one this year, but I uh, spooked it. So <laughs> I had I had feathers in my arrows, so I, I at least made a field college try at it. Um, but yeah, that's why I've never been big into predator hunting because I'd much rather be fishing. It's also an excuse for us to get our deer rifles and ARs and stuff like that out and play with them this time of year. I mean, other than just going to the range, it's you feel like you're actually hunting. I mean, because yeah. you are actually hunting, but... Yeah, that, and it's just kind of cool to see what animals you can spook up with that electronic call. So we had a run-in, and that deer, he didn't even really seem to mind. He was just... You should blast that cougar call, see what you can find. <laughs> wanna see, if you ever want to see Drew leave somewhere really quickly, turn on a cougar call. I did that one day uh, up I'm at the cabin. Fan. I just blasted it off a couple times, and he wouldn't even go back outside for the rest of the night. He stayed locked inside the cabin. I'm not a fan. <laughs> not when I know they're up there. Eh, they won't hurt you. They're more scared of you. Uh, I, I think <laughs> I believe what, they're more what? scared of me, but they're also more capable of killing me in the dark than That's I That's why you them. always carry a pistol. We've all learned We that. all carry guns We've up there. We all carry pistols up there now, so you just gotta learn. In Missouri, they changed the law a couple years ago, so if you have a conceal and carry now, you can carry while bow hunting. But as of a couple years ago, you couldn't do that. That's a yeah, recent, so recent change, which we've all been really happy about. Yeah, because some of us didn't even bow hunt for a while, because, I mean, you know, there is always that chance, whether it's whether it's real or not. Um, you know, we, we have seen some up there. It's, it's, not, it's not a common occurrence, but they have been seen up there. We are close enough to Iowa border that they could just be passing by but you know when i was bowing in high school i had a run-in with one and uh first light of morning and walking into a stand just barely seeing had a run-in and that kind of changed my opinion on them yeah because it's part of the reason why i didn't turkey hunt for a while because i ran across one and all i had was a shotgun and you know i even though i'm running three and a half turkey loads in that shotgun i think all i'll do is piss it off so um so yeah now now we pretty much carry pistols anytime we go out in the woods just, you know just pistols and self-defense ammo just in case because you never know what's going to happen whether you know if you're out deer hunting and you shoot a deer and you make a bad shot and it gets up and tries to charge you it's always it's always better safe sorry um all right well i think chris has a scope he wants to review this week let's want to tell us a little bit about it and then we'll grab the camera and we'll get a video of this as well so it's a it's an icon buckmaster scope and or buckmark it's their middle of the line scope the the one I have is the six by eighteen by forty. It's only offered. I think it's only offered through Midway, and it runs. Which is handy because it's right down the street. It is handy because Midway is here in town for us. But it's it like runs two miles away. Runs around three hundred dollars as a normal price. You can catch. I think when I got mine, I had a, if you spent three hundred dollars, you got thirty dollars off. So I paid like two seventy for mine, and I've had it five six years now. And really, a couple, has it been that long? It has. A couple of the other guys have them, too. We've all been really happy with them. And I feel like for $300, it's a really good bang for the buck. It's hard it's to beat. It's not a Leopold. It is not, <laughs> but a comparable Leopold is almost twice the price. I've had it. I originally got the scope to put on a, which is, uh, back, it's back on that gun now, on a 
Um, it's a Sako 223, and I set it up to kind of predator hunt with and as a target gun back when ammo was cheap before the all the prices went up, and that's when I originally set it up that way to target shoot with it as an alternative to my high-dollar expensive rounds. And then I didn't end up using it very much. I ended up on a 300 Win Mag, which I hunted with on there for about four years and took some deer... Took a deer to a bucket 265 with it. I've taken a coyote at 350 with it. I've taken a lot of kills from the, in the 2 to 250 range with it. I really like it. It reaches out there well. It's not. It's not $500 glass. It's definitely not $1,000 glass. But Isn't that what Greg has on his that he shot his buck at with this year? Yeah, Greg took uh, his 16 point at. It's 240? Two, no, it's like 280. Was it? Okay. Yep. Uh, I know it was a really weird angle and everything, too. So. The, the, 40, the 40 millimeter objective isn't. Isn't the best, but it I mean, comes with sunshade, right? Though it does come with a three-inch sunshade, which is those are nice. Those are nice, especially for target shooting, deer hunting, and stuff. I usually don't carry it except sometime in the afternoons if we're getting out there early, and I think I might have an Snowy early days, shot. It would be nice, but definitely low light. You want to pull those off. It's only a one-inch tube. Again, if for just standard hunting, not too big of a deal. If you want to get into the target shooting, you you're gonna want bigger. I ended up I replaced it this past year with a Vortex Viper. I wanted to step up to the thirty millimeter tube and the it's got i have a 44 millimeter objective but for four or five years that was my my go-to scope and it's still i put it back on my 223 now to i plank with it some i take it out sometimes we coyote hunt a lot of times i still like to take my 300 out just because and that's still available on midway's website right now. i was as like a month ago when i looked yep um if anybody looking for a scope i suggest it i up until i got that scope i always hunted with the the three by nines by 40s just like everybody else what power was that one which one? The Nikon. 3 by 18 It's a 6 by 18 6 by 18 So, once I went bigger, I'll never go back. I'm never going to run a 3 by 9 again. I mean, I have one on a 22 and a couple older guns, like a 30-30, but buying a new scope, I'm never going to put anything less than 12 power. I understand some people, if you're hunting in the woods, like, you don't even, 6, 7 power is all you need, 9. But up where we're at, we're big open land, you're taking, we, we have a lot of opportunities to shoot it anywhere from three to 500 yards. Yeah, and I like two- a 200, 200 yard shot's nothing up there. The average deer I've shot has been over 200 yards. Yeah, I don't up there. think, I mean, I've shot them closer, but, you know, that was just out of dumb luck. But most of the time they're 200 yards or so. And part of it's, it's part of it's where I sit. I've sat in bow stands and stuff and shot them right under the tree. But since I've got the gun, I've got the scope and everything, I like to sit on big ridges where I, I'm going to have long shots. And uh, the high power is nice for that. You can zoom in, you can get a good look at them, especially. Now we're running cameras, so it's not as big of a deal a lot. We know what's out there, but before, when we didn't have cameras, that wasn't an option at the time. Well, hadn't gotten into that, so we didn't... When you saw a deer, you were trying to field judge it, and uh, the higher magnification helps a lot. Yeah, because you get some of the... You know, sometimes you think you're shooting a doe, and it's got little spikes that are don't even stick up past its ear. And those are legal. Those are legal antlers in Missouri, and that would be an illegal deer. We have a, we have a point restriction here, and I think most states are going to point restrictions now. And, uh, you know, we could, you could get burned real easy by those little spike bucks. If you're a beginning shooter, the six power as the minimum magnification on there might be a little bit of a problem for you if you're not real comfortable with your gun. Um, in the woods and stuff, I know a lot of guys like to run them, run the three power. When we're tracking deer, being doing deer drives and real thick stuff, I have a little 30-30 with a, a two-by-seven on it, which I like because you can run a two power in the woods and it's easy to pull up and find the deer in it. With the six power, that's not. It's a little bit harder. But if you're if you're comfortable with your gun, you're used to shouldering it and bringing the gun between you and the deer without taking your eye off of it. You're going to be fine. If you're not real comfortable and you're trying to look through the glass and then find the animal, and like 
you're gonna you're gonna have some problems with the six power. But uh, anyone who's done much shooting, if you're you're out there and if you're gonna be walking around trying to shoot a deer offhand, you should be at the point where you can pull up and have the deer be in the scope. Otherwise, probably not the shot for you. And that comes into personal ethics and where where you feel comfortable shooting as far as that goes. I'm not trying to preach on anybody there or anything like that. But personally, the six isn't a problem for me. My new scope is a 6.5 by 20, the the Vortex Viper I'm running, and the 6.5 anymore. And after hunting with that 18 power, I don't run it much below nine ever. Even when I'm walking in, I'm comfortable pulling up on a deer a nine power. If it if I can't find it, deer's moving enough. It probably isn't a shot I should be taking. But just something to think about. The eye relief on it, it's pretty it's pretty nice. It's good. I, I mean, obviously I put on a 300 wood mag, so it's a heavy recoiling gun. I've never had never had the scope kiss or anything like that. So all in all, just a good all-around scope. I've been really happy with it. Anyone who's looking for a scope, I highly suggest it. If, you, if you've if you been running the, the cheap scopes and the BSAs, the Burruses, there's a bunch of those. And I know those some of those scopes. Yeah, those, and yes, those companies make higher-end scopes, but a lot of the stuff I see people... Because they come on the gun. You yeah, go they come on the scope. You go out and go buy a Remington 770. It's going to have a Bushnell on a cheap it. cheap little yeah. $100 If your Bushnell gun came it. with a scope on it, you probably want to look into stepping up. And uh, That's if you're hunting. If you're hunting. You know, if you're shooting deer out past 100 yards. If you're shooting. If, if your average shot's 50, 75 yards. And you're not hunting where, you know, you have to worry about the lens fogging up or anything like that. Those will be fine. And, and the scope also comes in other magnifications. You get them anywhere. I just my uncle just got a four by twelve, to to put on a little ranch gun of his, and I like it. I like them. I mean, the glass is still the same. I've been happy with those too. I think the he got his on sale for like hundred and thirty, which is a heck of a scope for that price range. But if you've done much shooting, think about stepping up to a, a nicer scope. If you there's no reason to have a seven hundred thousand dollar gun with one hundred and fifty dollars worth of glass on it. It's kind of a a waste um, in my opinion. Now, before, I have a couple questions about mm-hmm. before we go over to video. Um, how is the cold weather performance on it? Because if a lot of people probably know how it is to get excited, get pulled down on a deer, and breathe on the scope just, you know, as you're getting adjusted, breathe on the scope and fogging it up. Um, my Leopold, I mean, I know Leopold, they have the great, you know, they have the great fog resistance on it. I've never really that yeah. well, They do a but, really good job. But. Um, you know, how is how does that perform? Um, it's not bad. I mean, yes, you breathe on it real hard. It's going to fog up for a second. I've never had one not come unfogged in a couple seconds in the experience I've used. Where so I know using that got Greg a little bit. Sure. On a, he put a big old huff into it right as he pulled up on one and had to wait a little bit for it to clear. Be smart. Um, well, I mean, that, that, it, it's not, you know, yeah, no, it know. happens. And especially it, if you wear a face mask, a lot of times you pull up there and the air comes out by your nose and will hit it as you're, as you're getting your sight picture lined up. What I've seen a lot of young hunters do, hunting with, you know, cousins, siblings, new people, they bring the gun up, they look through the scope of the deer, and then they like to re- they lift their head back up and look over the top of the scope and see the deer, like, without magnification, and kind of watch it for a little bit. But when you bring your head up, they set their they set their chin on the stock of the gun, and they breathe right in the scope. And you do it a couple times, they'll fog up. Before I got the, the Nikon, I had a bunch of older scopes, and, I mean, I had some, some loopholes, and they'll fog up a little on you, too, especially and the older that, ones. And then the, yeah, the older they get. I mean, mine's old enough now that it's starting to, it's starting to drop away, but, I mean, it's still... Is it is it a $1,000 scope? No. The, the coatings on it aren't that great, but I've been happy with it. I feel they're more than adequate as far as, as far as that goes. Um, and then you kind of touched on it. How is low light performance on it? 
with a anything with a 40 a 40 millimeter objective and a one inch tube it's not going to be great they're going to be okay newer scopes do better the the coatings and stuff help with that too it did i've got i've shot some some weavers it gathers light a lot better than my one inch uh, tube loophole does uh, granted that's a 33 millimeter objective on that because it's on a little 30 30 it's not the 40 but yeah i've been real happy as far as that goes is it a starlight scope or anything like that no but for a 40 millimeter it's not bad and you're saving weight when you start getting into the the bigger objectives the bigger tubes and everything to let more light through you're adding weight to your gun which is something you want to think about i've gotten into that issue the my 300 that i deer hunt with weighs 11 and a half pounds it is awful to walk in the woods with. But for what I'm doing, I'm, I'm carrying it over my shoulder. I'm walking and I'm hunting big ridges. To me, it's worth that. If you're trying to build a a gun to walk in the mountains and stuff with. A mobile gun. A, a mountaineer gun. Yeah, a one. This, this scope would be great for that. You can reach out there a long ways without adding a whole bunch of weight. Um, on the opposite of that, how about he- heavy light? I mean, I know it has the sunshade on it, but let's say we were hunting in fresh powder, you know, fresh snow um, on a hillside. I mean, how is how does... Does it does it gather too much light even with the sunshade on it, or you is get it, too much is it glare pretty, on it? Yeah, you get a lot of glare from it. I hunted what four or five days in the snow. I just recently pulled that scope off my deer rifle. Off yeah, my we had snow almost every day we hunted this year. And re- I replaced that scope at Christmas, and I yeah I hunted with it a lot. Of, uh, what hunted? Did I shoot one deer last year. Yeah, I only shot one deer with it last did you year. Shoot that coyote with it. Yeah, I did shoot a coyote with it too. It was overcast, but it's still pretty bright. I I never put the sunshade on this year in the in the snow. I didn't have any problems. We, oh, that's why you got the bad shot on the coyote. Not a bad the sun shot. Doesn't even too out. far forward. Too far forward. So Pat has been giving me crud for the last <laughs> six months because this coyote I shot at three hundred and fifty yards. <laughs> The uh, exit wound was a little far back because the angle he was at. And he's been giving me crud about it ever since. And he comes up showing it off with the exit wound side out. So the first thing you see is because it didn't. The bullet didn't really expand, so it looks like an entry hole. Like you can, you if you get up close, you can tell it was an exit hole. But he comes up showing it off with the exit side out, and it looks like it's like you know about two inches forward from where it should be. You know what? A coyote's a really small target. I was really excited when I shot that, so I was showing it off. One thing I didn't talk about are the reticles in the scopes. I like to use... Is it a mil dot? I use a mil dot. The one I have is a mil dot. And it comes in... It you, comes come in you can get in plex, you can get in fine plex, you can get the BDC reticle or Which, the mil did dot. Did Scott get like the, the BDC? BDC? Maybe Greg did. Somebody, one Somebody, of our friends yeah. has one in the BDC. I like... It's whatever you're comfortable using. I like the mill dot because it's a steady drop all the way down. The BDCs I know were set up for certain work well with certain ballistics. Like this is supposed to be around 200. This is supposed to be around 300. Um, I don't have a problem with them personally. I've never I, I played with them a little bit, but I've always used the mill dot. I like that a little better. I will say, and you're going to run into this on any of the the not high end scopes that have mill dot reticles in them. Your clicks on your tubes. scope are yeah on your tubes. They are. They're in MOA, not milliradians. Are they which a fifth MOA or they a tenth? They usually are a quarter or an eighth. Yeah. Oh, well, the ones on my Leopold are, there must be an eighth then. But anyways, usually it's about four clicks to an inch. It kind of depends, but... Which, personally, I prefer an MOA. But anyways, if you're going to do long-distance target shooting, that's one thing to be conscious of, going between um, MOA and mil dot, milliradians. It's just another conversion you kind of have to do in your head. For what we're doing, it's not a problem. But And if you're into the high-end stuff, that's probably 
not what you're going for anyways. But something to be conscious of. I carry a drop chart. I have a little slip-on um, shell holder that goes over the buttstock, and I keep a little card in there with my drops on it. And I have a drop set. What I was carrying with the, the loophole or with the Nikon scope, I had drops for 12 power and for 18 power. And with this is a second focal plane scope, almost unless you're into high end guns, pretty or high end scopes, pretty much everything you ever shot is second focal plane. And when you see the advertisements and everything for the the uh, any of the ballistic drop reticules, they don't necessarily point out, but at different magnifications, those drops change. So what your drops are at six power and what they are at nine power and twelve power are all different. If you want them to be the same, you have to jump up into a first reticle plane scope, and then you're usually talking a grand-ish. A grand grand and, and up significantly from there. So just something to be conscious of if you if you do have a ballistic drop scope of any kind, that those numbers do change when you start playing with your magnification. But um, I like the, the mill dot is what I'm, I'm comfortable with. I like using. All right, well, we're going to get the cameras ready, and we'll, uh, we'll get you all some video of this to so kind of go over it show all the features and nice things about it, what he likes, what he doesn't like, and all that. Um, stay stay with us, and we'll be back, and you can, we'll do the audio of this, and we'll, again, like last time, we'll upload the video to YouTube and Facebook, or post, you know, post a link to it on Facebook, so you'll be able to access it. So, all right, stay tuned. All righty. Uh, what we have here is the Nikon Buckmaster. It's a 6 by 18 by 40 You can see guns unloaded. Um, I've got it here. This is a Sako Vixen. It's a two two three. The scope here comes with my set of covers here. It's got a three-inch sunshade. Um, the set one-inch tube, 18 power, nice and adjustable here, pretty easy going. Um, also comes with a set of target turrets you can put on there that are exposed. I don't have them on there at the moment, obviously, because this is kind of a hunting rifle. We use it for target shooting, for shooting coyotes, that kind of stuff. All in all, I've been really happy with the scope. I've used it quite a bit. I've had it on this gun, which is rather light recoiling. I've also had it on a 300 Win Mag. I deer with that quite a bit. Uh, shot several deer over 250 with it. I took a coyote at 350 with it. So really reaches out there and performs a long way. For a 40 millimeter scope, I've been pretty happy with it. Uh, does pretty well collecting light. Sunshade helps when it's real sunny. Um, I have the mill dot reticle in there. On the side, it's got a parallax adjustment, which is really nice. If you don't know what those are, they help you with focusing at the different ranges that are marked on there. The other reason you want to always use those, if you have time to set them up, when you look through a scope, if you move your, if you move your head around a little bit, you'll notice that your reticle will move a little bit. By setting your parallax adjustment right, that helps minimize that and will make your gun actually more accurate. Um, all in all, I really found it's pretty nice. I think it's a little over three inches. I have the mill dot reticle in there. Um, one downside with this, and you're going to get that on a lot of these cheap scopes, the U, that is not a milliradian Can you zoom into that? turret on that, which is not a big deal, but if you were trying to dial in for doing target shooting, that could be a little bit of an issue. Not going to hold you back with something you need to be conscious of, a few more calculations you have to do if you're going to try to dial your targets. For me personally, I like to just carry a drop chart. Um, when I had this on my 300, I carried a drop chart for 12 power and 18 power because with a second reticle plane scope like this, your drops on any, not just in the mill dot, on any of the BDCs, any of those type of scopes, 
your ranges for your drops will change with your different different magnifications. So it is nice to carry a chart so you know those, or you're gonna have to memorize it for a couple different magnifications, or never change your magnification, which is kind of defeats the purpose of having a scope that can adjust. The low side on it only goes down to six power, which isn't super low if you're walking in the woods, but if you're a confident shooter and you're comfortable shouldering a rifle and bring it up on a target, it's not gonna be a problem for you. I think something, putting on one of these, the gun like this though, you could always get raised, because this does have iron sights, you could get raised. I like to keep them fairly low, and actually it's set a little bit lower on the other gun. The reason I like to do that, the closer it is to the barrel, the more precise your drops and stuff are gonna be. The, I usually suggest people do that. The only reason you wouldn't want to do that is if we, like, we have a friend, Greg, who is a, he's a tall guy, so he has a rather tall head. The problem he was having is that with the low rings, he had to do a weird angle on his cheek. So for him, it was actually beneficial to raise the scope up so it was in a more natural firing position for him. Yeah, if you're running that, like on this 223, a lot of, two, you know, small, you get smaller 223s for kids and stuff. They, they have iron sights and kids are generally they prefer iron sights at closer range because they're not fully, you know, they're not uh, fully adjusted to scopes. They don't understand scopes fully, so it is nice that you can still run raised, raised, you know, since it doesn't go down to any lower than six. Uh, the scope I paid two hundred and seventy dollars for it. Um, generally, they are three hundred dollars at Midway. I think that's the only place that offers them the six by eighteen. You can get them in the other, the lower models, the 4x12s, the 3x9s and stuff anywhere, but this is a, my understanding is a Midway exclusive, which is where I got it from. Um, I got it on sale. A lot of times you can find a coupon if you're willing to wait a little bit and save a little bit of money on it, but in this price range, these are really hard to beat. It's not a Leupold, it's not a Zeiss, it's not any of the high-end stuff. Who makes the, who, oh, I guess Nikon makes the lenses for yep. her. Well, the majority of your lenses are all made in the same place in the world. The people put a lot of emphasis on where the lenses are made, but for the most part, they're all pretty close. Well, Zeiss's are made in Germany. But um, almost everyone else, other than the Southeast couple. Southeast Asia. Or Southeast Asia, the, yep. Yeah, like Philippines and things like that. I think this is made in the Philippines, right? Uh, that would be my guess. The, the coatings on the lenses is usually what's the big difference. And these are okay. They've got decent fog lenses on them. I've never had a real problem with them fogging up. If you breathe into them, usually they clear in a couple seconds, even when it's real cold. Um... How does it handle vibrations? Since you have it on a larger gun, did you ever have problems with uh, with it getting bumped off off center or anything like that? No, I've never. And then my 300, obviously, that's a heavy recoiling gun. Never had any problems with it. Always held center. Um, that was on that gun for four years, and I don't think I might have adjusted it a hair here and there a few times, but for the most part, never never any problems. And then definitely on something like this, light recoil, you're never no. gonna have any problems, even if you ran a much cheaper scope. It's something that nobody ever wants to happen, but I don't know if you've ever had it happen. Uh, it always seems to happen to everybody. Have you ever? Did you ever drop the gun even just a few feet with it and never have it knock off center? I mean, it gets. It's been no. Okay. But I mean, it gets banged around a little bit. It spends a lot of time on my back going through the woods, climbing up deer stands. It gets banged a little bit, putting in the truck and stuff. I'm generally careful with my stuff, but they do get banged around. Um, rings are a big, a big thing. The original rings I put on here, I tried to use the rings from the '50s and mount the scope which mounted fine once but when I went to take them off I had to drill them out which was not fun when you're drilling extra scope and on a an, an older gun you don't want to tear them up so if you're going to mount a new scope put new rings on them yeah, rings are cheap it's easy to lap them then you know, it, you know it's it's not that big of a deal uh, unless if you have a Ruger rings are what 15 bucks usually 40 to 50 uh, or okay. I, I like yeah, to run the loophole I mean, rings ones, yeah. so I don't 
these actually I don't think are little bold brains that I say that, but on my my, my nicer guns, yeah, these are Weaver style. I put I like to run the dual dovetail little bold rings, and I think they're 35 to 40 somewhere in there. But in the grand scheme of things, when you spend a lot of money on a scope and a gun, don't let cheap rings be the reason why your gun doesn't perform well. Yeah, because um, you know you get those cheap rings, the Bass Pro brand, whatever their brand is, they they tend to the, the worm screws back out, things like that. I like to put Loctite in there. That'll that'll help too. Um, what green I recently got red, green, red, or blue. I got one of the. I don't know what. I think I'm running blue in it. Blue is the better one. Okay. Green, you're not getting out. I think green, you're not getting out without a torch. I recently got a, a Wheeler mounting kit to make sure you mount your reticle level in it, which I was real happy with. Does it come with a lap? No. The, well, we they make a lap, but no, I did not get. It did not come with the kit I got, and it sits on top of the action. It's got a a bubble level, and then you put one out here to match it, and then once you mount the scope, put the scope on there, you put the level up here. Level them all out, and you have a level crosshair. I've mounted a lot of scopes before using that, and after getting that, I realized I probably never had one that was truly perfectly level. Yeah. yeah. So it's a it's a thirty dollar investment, but I feel like it was worth it for me. And if you have a couple guns, and you're going to mount very many scopes at all. It's a worthy investment because I picked up a lot of guys' guns over the years, and oh, let me look at your gun, look through the scope, and they're they're canted. Yeah. Um. Is there anything? Is there anything that you don't like about this? For the price range, like, uh, is there anything you've seen in this price range on a scope that's better, um, that, you know, that, you know, that would kind of steer you towards a different scope? The You can save some money if you don't want the higher magnification. I was looking for something pushing 20 magnification. That's how I ended up with a 6x18. For, I think I got, my uncle just bought recently about the same scope, and he got on stuff like 140 and the 4x12, which same glass, all that stuff. I really like that scope too, but I you're going to pay a little bit more for the... The high magnification in that price range i really haven't seen anything and i've shot a lot of loopholes i have a couple i would put this up there with probably the 500 loophole glass and i'm not saying it's it's as good but you're not really going to notice a difference and you're saving a lot of money for the magnification if you just want a three by nine power you're i mean you can probably you can get a i think a loophole dx3 in about this price range but if you want this kind of magnification you're gonna it's a good so, so this is this is a scope that you would recommend for pretty much anybody who's looking for this, looking at a scope in this price range. If you're looking for a, a scope you can do some distance shooting with that's not a 30 millimeter tube. Once you step into the 30 millimeter tubes, your price goes way up. But yes, this is a, a great a great scope for the price. Anything gear hunting wise, if you're going to take any shots over 200, it's nice having the magnification. You can zoom in close, look at the deer. So yeah, definitely a good buy in my. My eyes had it for what, five years now, and I've loved it. Okay. And um, I don't know if I can show these off too much. This is the sunshade on it. Uh, it's aluminum, I'm pretty sure. Most of them are. A uh, few of them are plastic, I think. I've never had a plastic I one. I think there are some out there. Yeah. The one downside, and Drew pointed this out, it doesn't necessarily look real pretty with the scope because the, the scope lines don't line up on it. If I get it right back in there. Sorry. Anyways, you'll see it doesn't line up. Which is functionality not, wise, it doesn't really matter if you're building a real pretty gun. That and if you're two feet away, you don't notice it. You don't notice it. I, I've seen this. I've seen this scope on three different guns, dozens of times, and I didn't even notice it until Drew pointed it out because I'd never gotten up and take a close look at it. Um, so I mean, it's not something that's extremely obvious, but you know, for OCD people, it might be a problem. Um, and your your caps, they do fit both on with the sunshade on and off. They are adjustable. They yep, are yep. Uh, they, they stretch quite a bit. 
they're not quite as tight as they used to be because I stretch them out over the sun gap. Yeah. Sunshade a lot, but yeah, they're not they're not gonna they're not gonna fall off. They're not see through. Uh, might be a big deal for you, might not. I don't use them too much other than when it's in the case. Now, one thing, this is not um, is is the scope without the sunshade threaded on both ends, or because I know some of them, um, some of the Leopolds I think are threaded yeah, on both they're ends. They're not threaded on the backside. Yeah, because so you can use both flip, so you can use the screw on flip up caps. I, these uh, do not do that. But you could at least run the flip up cap. Right I have never run the flip up caps on the scope or on any of mine because again, the thread amount the scope as close as possible, and I've had problem with clearance, especially on. Um, this used to be on our Remington 700, and uh, I had some problems with bolt clearance. Yeah, so I, that was that was an issue with. That's why I never put pop-up rings on. The I like the pop-up ones personally. I, I like to hunt thick brush, so that's something that I look for personally, and that you know that might be something you all look for if you're if you hunt somewhere that's thick brush is those pop-up rings. So, and I think you can get slip on. You know, ones lots of companies slip. make. Slip yeah, there's ones. there's lots of different ones out there, but that's that is just something. Uh, but you could use screw-on ones that just look like standard standard threads, so you could use one of the threaded ones in the front. One thing to consider if you're mounting a new scope, and I didn't do it on this one, but on my, my other gun I do have it, is a bubble level. If you're going to do any target shooting at all, they're cheap. They're like $30, and they'll they'll mount onto the tube there, and it gives you a good, a good reference if you're trying to shoot off the ground, especially if you're doing anything where you're dialing in a drop or shooting anything past where your gun's zeroed at. If that gun's canted at all, you're going to start pulling your shots. And it may be an inch, it may be three, four, five inches, depending on how much you've canted and how much you're shooting. So that is a really, a really good investment now, on anything you're going to target shoot. In my opinion, I don't know if the the lower magnification scopes, whether um, are would this scope be be would you be able to run it on something like an SKS where you have to mount it off to the side? Um, I mean, without having without going into like a pistol scope or anything on like an assault rifle or something like that. I don't. This is not a scope I would put on something like an SKS. It's not an accurate gun. You're not shooting for distance. Yeah. Um, on an AR, I think it'd be fine if you're trying to reach out there and shoot a long way, predator hunting, stuff like that. But And then anything you're mounting a scope off to the side, I do have a 30-30 that's got a, a scope mount off the side. It It's functional, but they're not, it's not. It's never ideal when you don't have stuff lined up. I didn't know if any of the lower up. power ones were, you know, would be able to do that, which I know generally you want to run a pistol scope when you're doing that for the most part. Or you can run... Any, on assault rifle, something like an SKS, I would want to run like a 3x9 something, yeah. or maybe a 2x7 so you can get down low because ideally that's a close range. Not a, not a long distance accuracy gun, so high magnification wouldn't be, in my opinion, yeah. what you'd want on something like yeah. that. Alright. Well, thanks for watching. This has been another Outdoor Cast Review. Alright, well I think we're going to start wrapping things up. Uh, last segment, like in every show, is what we're looking forward to this week. Probably pretty much can have the same answer. I have a feeling, but we'll. I won't steal Chris's thunder, and I'll let him go. I'm looking forward to pulling them, getting the Monte Carlo pulled out, and getting started on that, and seeing what we've got to work with. Yep, same here. Yeah, um, I'd like to get it down here, get it out, get it washed up a little, just see what that thing really looks like. Yeah, because we're kind of debating on which color it is. We pulled up the colors for it. And it looks like a bluish black, but well, you know, there's there's two different colors it could be, and we're trying to decide which one it is. So it'd be nice to get her some pressure washer and get it cleaned up and. You know, see, see what we actually are working with. We'll see if it's watertight too. <laughs> I know it's not that back because it, you know, the, it didn't look like it was. Well, but. the Monte Carlos—they're awesome, and they have that rear uh, retractable, or rear lowering glass on the, pa- on the right behind the driver and passenger doors. Yeah, because yeah. you know you don't see that very often. And, well, it's a true hardtop. Well, yeah, but the, um, the one of the rear ones I tried to go down, and it just went back and forth instead of down. So. <laughs>
<laughs> I know that one's not watertight uh, because there's no pillar in between the back window and the front window. It's just a gasket that's attached to the back window. So, uh, yeah, it'll be interesting to do that, and that's what I'm excited about because it's going to be sitting in my house so I can work on it in my free time. So, um, but other than that, I mean, anybody else have anything coming up? You know, if you're going to try doing fishing this week or anything? Or? Mm, I might go fly fishing on Thursday for some trout down south at Michael. Uh, yeah, I might throw my fly rod in the car and hit up somewhere this week. I got some new flies that I want to try out. I got some big bass flies that I'm ready to try out. So if it works out, you know, heck, I might just wait. And if we go at the car this weekend, just go hit one of those bass ponds up there, try them out. I just want to see if I can catch a bass on a mouse. So. All right. All right. Remember, if it flies, it dies, and it's brown, it's down. All right. Well, thanks for listening. Um, remember to check us out on Facebook, YouTube, SoundCloud, and iTunes and Pocket Cast. If you have any comments, just leave us comments on almost any of those places you can leave comments. Um, if you have any ideas that you want us to cover, any topics that you want us to go over, just let us know. Um, we're always glad to listen. If you just if you want to tell us that we suck and you don't want to hear any more about this car or you don't want to hear any more about fly fishing, whatever, just let us know so we can you know we can figure out what the audience wants to hear. All right, well, have a good one, and remember, just go stay outdoors.